Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'd just like to read a section of a well-known child's book by way of introduction. Don't worry, I will not be preaching from this child's book. We will be preaching from God's Word. But the author writes, The caterpillar and Alice looked at one each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice, Who are you? This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself. You see? I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will someday, you know, and then after that into a butterfly, I should think you'll feel it a little strange, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is it would feel very strange to me. You, said the caterpillar contemptuously, who are you? Which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. I think at times as believers, we may find ourselves a little like Alice. We know who we were, but there have been changes and we really don't know who we are. We know that we're saved. We know that we are on our way to heaven. We know that we have eternal life. But how are we supposed to then deal with this life on this earth until we get to heaven? Who should we be? The answer of the question of what you are and not who you are, we understand. And more importantly, the question, why then does this matter? In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Peter writes, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
In these verses, Peter tells us that we are, as believers, a chosen generation. Exactly how that works out, we don't know, but we do know that God has chosen us to go from being his enemy to his heir. We are, Peter describes, a royal priesthood. A nod back to the Jewish priesthood where the priest, the tribe of Levi, were those chosen to represent the sovereign, holy God to mankind. And as believers, we are not just a priesthood supposed to represent God to mankind, but more importantly, because of our sonship to, of, with Christ, we are a royal priesthood. We are, Peter says, a holy nation, a people called to be different from the world. Oftentimes in our minds, when we think nations, we think politically drawn boundaries on a map. And we think, I am an American, or I am a whatever nation you hail from. But in God, we are not just a people that needs to pledge our loyalty to a physical nation, but more importantly, we are a people of God, a holy nation, a nation that is to be set apart, different from the world in which we live, to be a light to the world. We are a peculiar people or a special people. We were ransomed, we were redeemed for a special purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim him, to share the light with those in darkness, to offer acceptance in Christ to those who are unaccepted, to show mercy to those who are under the wrath of God. Peter calls us to recognize who we are. And that's introduction, because the rest of the sermon, I guess, is going to be conclusion. So what? Why does it matter that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people? How should that affect me on a day-to-day -day basis? How should that affect me as a believer once I walk out of these doors, when I wake up Monday morning to get ready to go to work? or to get ready to be retired? How does being a chosen generation, how does being a royal priest, how does being who I am in Christ, how should that affect my life on the day-to-day -day basis? And Peter tells us that in our text this morning, verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they may speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Father, as we look into your word this morning, I again ask that you would help us to get a sense of who we are as your children. And not just to be able to understand and define that, but more importantly, to then see how that should be applied to our everyday living. That those who observe us and come into our paths would recognize who we are and be drawn to you by our life and by our testimony. We ask that your spirit would do a work in our heart, that he would draw us closer to you, to your son, areas where we may need to change, that we would be willing to change, to be more like the image of your son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Peter reminds us in these verses, verse 11, that we are foreigners. We are strangers or sojourners and pilgrims. What does that mean if we're a sojourner, if we're a stranger? Well, imagine if you were, would that you are going to go onto a trip across the country. You're going to go ahead and see all of the sights that there are to see. As a sojourner, as a traveler, what are you going to bring? More than likely, we're not going to pack our entire house to go on this trip, to go on this journey. Why? Because we recognize that this is just a short trip. We'll be coming back to our house later. And as much as I may really like my kitchen sink, I don't need to bring that with me across the country. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. So does this mean that we just need to take everything we have and throw it away? After all, it's not coming with us. Just get rid of it. Take a vow of poverty, retire to a monastery or to a convent. No, we do have responsibilities given in the scriptures to provide for our families, to take care of those things. But what Peter is encouraging his audience to do and what he's encouraging us to do almost 2,000 years later is recognize our true home. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our conversation or our lifestyle is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As pilgrims recognizing our true home, we should not regard this earth as our home. Seeking to acquire the permanent possessions here, the old saying, the one who dies with the most gold wins, or if you're a pastor, the one who dies with the most books wins. Doesn't matter how many books of theology I have on my shelf, they don't come with me. And when I get to my true home, all those books of theology aren't going to matter anyway, because I'll get to meet the one and be with the one about whom those books are written. And I'll get to know which of those authors are right and which ones are wrong. 
But we shouldn't be living on this earth to acquire possessions as if we're going to remain here. Living to make attachments or arrangements to impede our journey to, their, to our final home. Encumbering ourselves with as much of this world's goods as possible. One commentator said, Many professing Christians seek to gather many worldly things around them, burdening themselves as no traveler would. A traveler takes along as few things as possible. This concept of just simply passing through this world has been widely held, and we may even recognize some of the songs that we have grown up with. Words that remind us, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Or words like this, I'm just a poor, wayfaring stranger, traveling through this world below. There is no sickness, no toil, no danger in that bright land to which I go. As strangers and pilgrims on this earth, we need to remember and recognize that our true citizenship is in heaven. It is not on this earth. And as much as I love this country, my true citizenship is not the United States of America. Too often, I think, as believers, we get caught up in the politics of the day that we lose focus of and lose sight of our true citizenship in heaven. We are foreigners in a secular society. And as such, Peter gives us two aspects of how we are to live our life. One aspect being a negative aspect because it's things that we should not do. And the other aspect being from the positive, here's what we should do. So as a foreigner, how should I live? First, from the negative. Peter tells us to abstain. Keep away from, avoid fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstaining from those desires that would keep us from keeping our focus on our eternal destination. How can we do this? We can do this, first of all, by following the example that Christ leaves to us. As we see in a few verses down in verses 21 through 23, Peter reminds us, For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Christ suffering on this earth, living a perfect life, he gave us an example for how we are to live. That ye should follow 
his steps. Christ, verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again when he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And Peter specifically brings out a couple of things from the example of Christ that as believers, I think are difficult for us to do. Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. If I can be honest, it's difficult. When someone talks badly about me or when someone is critical of me to just keep my mouth shut, because there is a very large part of me that wants to justify myself, that wants to vindicate myself. And so when someone is criticizing me, especially if they are falsely criticizing me, there is a very large point of part of me that wants to respond. But what is the example here of Christ? When he was reviled, he kept his mouth shut. The prophet Isaiah says, as the sheep before the shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. When Christ was beaten, when he was whipped, when he was scourged, when he had the crown of thorns pounded into his skull, when he was being mocked from the cross, not once did he reply. Not once did he, oh yeah? Well, here's why you're wrong. No, but he suffered. He gave an example for us to follow. A very difficult example for me to follow. But enough about me. How about you? Christ reviled not again when he suffered. He threatened not, but rather, what did he do? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Why? Because he knew in three days, God the Father was going to raise him from the dead. And as we've been looking at in the book of Acts, Christ's resurrection was the vindication of God on his life, that he was God's chosen one. And Christ didn't take it upon himself to try to defend himself. Instead, he turned that over to the one who will vindicate him. And as difficult as that may be for us, we want to get our own vindication now. No, God, it's in your hands. Peter tells us to abstain. Literally, hold ourselves away from fleshly lusts. If you ask my wife, I am weird. Let me explain why. I enjoy snakes. I know enough about snakes to know which ones to mess with and which ones to leave alone. And growing up, there would be times where I would come across a snake and very quickly recognize, okay, this snake is not poisonous, and quickly pick it up and play with it and show it off. 
My wife, absolutely not. Snakes are the devil. Genesis 3, read it. Um, but there are some snakes that I will not touch or go near. There's one snake in particular that has a telltale warning sign, a rattle that is warning you, hey, you're getting too close, back up. And if you were to be hiking through the woods and you would be hearing that rattle, I think you would probably stop and try to identify where it's coming from and stay as far away as possible. There are some people, though, who I think didn't get that bit of common sense. There are some people who intentionally go looking for rattlesnakes and other venomous snakes to catch them and use their venom for good. You know, growing up, one of the animal handler heroes that I had was the crocodile hunter. It's a black mamba. It's the deadliest snake in the world. And what does he do? I'm gonna touch it. No, keep it away from you. That's what Peter is saying. Abstain, hold that sin, hold those fleshly desires as far away from you as possible. But too often as believers, we're more like crocodile hunter Christians. Oh, I know that sin is bad, but I'm going to touch it. I'm going to get as close as I can to it. Avoid the fleshly lusts. This refers more to just the sensual temptations. It refers to the works of the flesh. Or as Paul tells us in Galatians 5, how we lived prior to our salvation. The works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19, are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelrings, and such like. But oftentimes, as Christians, we instead of holding ourselves away from those fleshly lusts, we want to know how close can I get before it becomes sin. I remember teaching Bible class at another school. A good portion of the time would be the students wanting to know, okay, how close can I get to this sin before it actually becomes sin? How close can I get to that rattlesnake before it strikes? Paul warns us about lewdness, the indecency, sorcery, and the word there is pharmakia in the Greek. It's where we get our English word pharmacy. Back in that time period, people would make mind-altering and mood-altering drugs, and those would often be used in ritualistic witchcraft practices. Paul says avoid those. Hatred, contentions. You know, an argument where you always have to be right. Envying, being jealous of others. Recognizing that as we are just passing through this life, 
We need to exercise the discipline of denying these ungodly, worldly, and fleshly lusts. Why? Because they are at war, Peter tells us, against the soul. These ungodly desires are like an army of rebels, guerrilla soldiers who are constantly trying to destroy our joy, peace, and usefulness to God. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, he sees another law in his members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The idea that as we are Christians, as we are pilgrims, there are going to be desires, there are going to be things that are going to try to keep us from living with our eternal destination in view. And it is a battle, it is a struggle. But we have a way to have victory through that struggle. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Peter reminds us, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. How can we have victory in these areas taking on the mind of Christ? For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased to sin. Why? So that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Christ, as he was on this earth, did not live for the pleasures of himself, but instead continually put himself under the will of the Father. And we see this at its greatest display the night before Christ was put on the cross. Whereas he was in the garden with his disciples and he went off to pray and they were supposed to be praying, but instead they fell asleep. Christ prayed three times, remove this cup from me. If it's possible for salvation to happen in any other way, make that happen. And yet, what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. How did Christ live on this earth? By submitting himself to the will of the Father. We can remember how Christ lived. We can secondly, in this battle, remembering the words of Christ. If you were of this world, John, Christ says in John fifteen nineteen, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. As we go through this world, there will be difficulties. There will be times of trying but we can remember what Christ says. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they listened to me, they'll listen to you. And we remember how well the Jews listened and obeyed Christ. They heeded his words all the way to the point of putting him at the cross. As we go through the difficulties in this life, we remember the work of Christ, we remember the words of Christ, but also we can remember the grace of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then am I strong. Recognizing that as we go through this life, those times of difficulty, we can, as believers, turn from God at those points. God, why are you having this happen to me? Why are you allowing this difficulty in my life? God, I thought you loved me. But instead, the mindset that Paul takes on is, God, this difficulty I'm going through is an opportunity for you and for your son to show yourself strong in my life. So please do that. We can remember the example of others. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you've known my doctrine, my way of life, my purpose. Timothy, you have followed me around. You know what I believe. You know the persecution that I've been through. Timothy, I can do it through Christ. You can go through your life because Christ will strengthen you as well. And Paul even warns Timothy that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. And if we can think back of how wicked the world was when Paul was writing this, and it's going to get worse and worse. Should we expect the world to be being better? Should we expect the unsaved individuals around us to treat us better than they treated Paul, than they treated others? So we've been going through the study in Sunday school with the men, the persecutions that these martyrs have gone through. And this world is just getting worse and worse. But we are to abstain, we are to live our lives keeping those fleshly desires, keeping those things which will keep us from Christ as far away from us as possible. As we sang this morning, are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? We are foreigners, we are pilgrims, we are strangers in this world. And keeping our focus on our eternal home, our real destination, we are to live in this life by keeping those sins at an arm's length. Remembering the words of Christ, remembering how he lived his life, seeing the example of those who have gone on before, even in the midst of persecution. Negatively, there is the aspect of not doing things, but Peter doesn't just give us the negative, he gives us a positive. It's not just that you don't do this, but that you then do this. In Sunday school, I reference the phrase in science that nature abhors a vacuum. If all that the Christian life is, is a bunch of don't do this, and if we become convicted of a certain sin and we, through the grace of God and the strength of Christ, are able to take that sin and remove that sin from our life, there's now a vacuum. There's now an empty place and something else is going to fill that place. And Peter's not just saying abstain from the fleshly lusts, make a bunch of empty spaces, but he's then telling us what to put in the place of those empty spots. What is the positive that we should then be doing? Having, therefore, your conversation honest 
among the Gentiles. Instead of following the fleshly lust which war after our soul, we are to have an honorable conduct, having our conversation or our way of life, our lifestyle, honest. The word implies the purest, highest, or noblest kindness. It's not just Peter saying, go around and tell the truth only. He's saying, live your life, demonstrating the ultimate kindness to those around you. The ultimate golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the greatest turning of the cheek. So we're abstaining from those things that will keep us from Christ, abstaining from those things which will take our focus off of our Savior, take our focus and distract us on this earth instead of living in light of our eternal destination. But we are to be living honestly. Why should we do that? You know, Peter tells us why. It's like the student who gets told, okay, here's what you need to do. And the first question they ask is, why? Why do I need to do it that way? Can't I do it this way instead? Well, you could try it that way, but you're going to just get frustrated. But here's why you should do it this way. Why should we live honorably? Is to show the foolishness of the false accusations against you. When they speak against you as evildoers... You know, I had to ask myself the question, out of all of the things that could happen to Christians, out of all of the things that could be happening to the Christians that Peter is writing to, why does he focus this one out, that people are going to speak evil against you? I think part of that answer comes understanding when this epistle was written. Scholars believe that this epistle was written in late A.D. 64, early 65. Okay, Peter is writing to a specific audience. You know, late 64, early 65, what does that have to do with that audience? If we remember what happened on July of A.D. 64, the city of Rome was burned Presumably by Emperor Nero to make way for more land for him to build what he wanted to build on. The Roman citizens were devastated. Their religious life, their culture, their homes were destroyed. Just imagine something like that happening in America. Something happening that would completely disrupt our culture, our life, our everyday living. How would we feel? How would we react? Well, that's exactly how the Romans felt. Nero needed a scapegoat. So what does he do? He falsely blames the Christians for starting the fire. The Christians were already hated because of their association with the Jews. The Romans had a disdain for them. They were seen as being hostile towards Roman culture. So Peter is giving specific instructions. Hey, people are going to start speaking evil against you. That's why you need to live your life right. So that when those evil accusations 
come. There were false accusations leveled against these Christians for starting the fire. They were accused of being atheists because the Christians no longer worship the Roman gods. Therefore, they worship no god. They are atheists. And any time a natural disaster would happen in Roman society, it meant the gods were angry. So when a natural disaster would happen, the gods must be angry at these people who don't worship those gods, these atheists. Let's kill the Christians. False accusations would be brought against them about cannibalism. The Romans didn't quite understand the concept of the Lord's table. You know, what is this partaking of the body and blood of Christ? And so the Christians were falsely accused of cannibalism. They were falsely accused of immorality because of the bond of love that Christians had towards each other. So Peter is warning them because of these false accusations that are going to happen, Christians then as well as now need to live our lives beyond reproach so that those who actually know us would be able to see the truth and be converted to Christ. He says that they may by your good works which they shall behold. You know, it doesn't matter how eloquently we can prove a point. If my life, if our lives as Christians don't demonstrate a difference, abstaining from those fleshly lusts, not living like the world around us is living, what we say doesn't matter. Who is going to listen to us talk about the forgiveness that Christ offers if people know us as individuals who are full of bitterness towards someone? Christ can forgive you, but I'm really bitter at this person. I can't forgive. Why would someone want to listen to us about the love of Christ if they know that we have hatred towards someone else or animosity? We need to live our lives so that those who know us, they see the accusations and they look at us and they're like, these don't line up. The story is recounted by Bishop Basil of Caesarea in AD 370 of the 40 martyrs. In 313, Emperor Constantine had issued an edict, or 312, granting Christian religious freedoms, the Edict of Milan. His co-ruler at the time, Licinius, however, did all in his power to try to stamp out Christianity in his part of the Roman Empire. Licinius was attempting to overthrow Constantine, and he was worried that any Christians in his army would turn against him in battle. He finds out that 40 of his most valiant soldiers had declared their loyalty to Christ. They were unwilling to waver or renounce him. So he condemned them to be exposed. Naked on a frozen pond near Sebaste on a bitterly cold night. 
The guards had prepared warm baths around the lake to tempt them to leave and renounce Christ. Throughout the night, it's recorded that one could hear these 40 Christians singing or chanting, Preserve until the end, then you shall be saved. In the first hour of the night, one fled to the safety of the warm baths and renounced Christ. But the shock of the warm body, warm water on his frozen body caused him to die. Now there were 39 on the ice. Algius, who was commanded to watch over them, saw their resolution, heard their testimony through the night, and come the morning he had stripped himself of his armor and his robes and joined the remaining 39 to again make their number 40. Later it was discovered their frozen bodies on the ice, some still showing signs of life, but they were all burned and their ashes were scattered. These believers were willing to take a stand to live their lives in such a way that they were going against the culture of their day. And because of their lifestyle, because of their perseverance for the testimony of Christ, well, here's what they're condemned for, but that's not what I'm seeing. We see one individual at least coming to know Christ as his Savior. They may by your good works which they shall behold. Peter is not saying here that it is optional for a Christian to live a holy life. He's saying people will see you living differently. Why? Because as a stranger, as a foreigner on this earth, I am going to live differently than the way the world lives by keeping those fleshly lusts away, by living honorably on this life. Our lifestyle has a greater testimony than our speech. So, to go back to the beginning illustration, who are you? As believers, we are travelers on this earth. Are we living as such? Are we living as journeymen? Or are we too concerned about the things of this world? When it comes to the warfare, the struggles that we're in by keeping those fleshly lusts of this life away, how are we doing? Are we winning that war? Are we at least struggling in that war? Or are we like so many Christians just completely giving up? What's the point? I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, who cares how I live? No, as believers, we are to live as if we are foreigners. Are we living honorable lives? Is there a difference in our lifestyle, desires, and thoughts from the lifestyle, desires, and thoughts of those who are living for themselves in this world around us? Are we living testimonies for Christ? Father, we thank you for your word. And God, as even 
you have challenged us again this morning that we are to live our lives separate from this world as strangers, as pilgrims. God, I pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve as Christians to abstain from, to put away the fleshly lusts that war against us. That maybe we've been knocked down in that battle and we struggle to even desire to continue to fight for what is right. God, in that weakness, would you strengthen us and would your son show himself strong? Those of who are fighting and battling, continue to encourage us through your word. And God, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in such a way that our lifestyle and our testimony would bring those who would watch us and know us to ask questions about why we're different that they may by the good works we do, which they will see, glorify you. Father, we do ask that if there is one who is in this room, who is listening, who is not a stranger or, stranger or a pilgrim in this world, who has never put their faith and trust in you, I ask that today would be that day. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.